welcome to another episode of the Immigrant's Journey podcast. I am your host, Carmenetta, and today we are so pleased to have with us Felicia, also known as Philly Speaks. She is a Nigerian-Irish poet, performer, and playwright from County Longford. She's also a member of the Dublin City Council's Culture Company Advisory Panel and a member of the Board of Members for Poetry Ireland. She has been nominated Best Performer by Dublin Fringe Festival in 2018 for her performance in Boy Child, written by Dagogo Hart and herself. Felicity Speaks has also had the opportunity to perform her poetry at Concern 50th anniversary in Dublin Castle in 2018, which included speakers such as UN Deputy Secretary General Amina J. Mohammed, President of Ireland Michael D. Higgins, President Bill Clinton, former President of Ireland, Mary Robinson. Felicia has also been honored with an award by the African Professional Network of Ireland for her unique contribution to the art scene in Dublin City. Felicia Speaks is a member of We Got Griot, a poetry collective consisting of herself and Dagogo Hart and Samuel Yakura, curating poetry, rap events, talkatives, and writing plays. Lizzie Speaks is currently enjoying creating poetry and performance pieces that always promise to introduce her audience to the journey of emotion in every story. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. So tell us about, well, whatever you remember about life and Nigeria, and what do you love about Nigerian culture? Uh, I don't know if I remember too much about life in Nigeria. Um, I left as a child, um, but I remember living in my grandfather's compound at some stage. I remember um, sandy, just ground. I remember palm trees, banana trees, um, and that's pretty much all I remember. (laughs) (laughs) Now, tell me about the compound. You guys didn't live in a house. What is exactly the compound? Oh, it's I think my grandfather just had a couple of houses built in like a piece on a piece of land and that was his. So there was a main house and then another house that he rented out to another family. Um, So generally with that much space, we just it was just called a compound. It just had different grounds or different things on the grounds. Um, But yeah, I remember that. But I've only recently gone back to Nigeria, maybe. October 2019 is the last time I went back to Nigeria for the, or the first time I went back since I've been in Ireland and it was very interesting I, it was it was it was so different and it was so familiar at the same time it felt like oh my god everybody's black <laughs> <laughs> yes that was the first thing that kind of like resonated and that was like um that hit me for the first time I I don't think I'd been in a space where every single person was familiar or looked like me in a certain way um and that was interesting to be um counted as the majority and that also made me like completely neutral it just meant like apart from maybe obvious pieces or reflections on me that uh, signaled a different class um I would probably melt in the in the background and I wouldn't stick out like a sore thumb uh, and I wouldn't it, it felt really nice to be visible and invisible at the same time um, and I'd never felt like that before whereas like living in Dublin as or living in Maynooth uh, and Maynooth Island um, 
it's a different experience. And as much as I love it, it's like you are very visible all the time um, and in a different way, uh, invisible within the system or um, yeah, invisible in the spaces or in the representation, but you're really visible in your difference and in your appearance. Whereas when I went back to Nigeria, I was just like, nobody cares. <laughs> exactly. You're just like us, whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I felt like, um, a lot of honor in my beauty, actually. Um, and that was the visibility part. So the invisibility part was everybody else was black, but the visibility part was like, oh yeah, you're like, people would readily be like, oh, you're beautiful. I think in the three weeks I was there, I got I've gotten a lot more compliments, like in just my appearance on a regular day than like if I was walking down the streets of Dublin. And obviously the, there's a difference in culture and like, um, um, how you approach strangers per country anyway, but like, that's a side note. Um. <laughs> no, but tell me, what's the difference of approaching new people in Nigeria versus Ireland that you observed? Um, I think, I think, mm, I think people are more comfortable approaching you in Nigeria. Well, from my experience anyway, like a complete stranger. Um, I'd had more um, stranger experiences um, like people would just come up to you and just say something to you or have a comment about you, this or that. Um, yeah, it was a really different experience in that way. Whereas like I would have to exist in a conversation and introduction with somebody here, like before that could happen. Like I couldn't be necessarily sitting in a pub and like a group of girls come up to me like casually, like, Oh, Hey, you know, I just want to talk to you. That would be a little bit like, oh, this is random. <laughs> so that's my next question. Would you be approached more by strange men or strange women in Nigeria? Oh, um, that's interesting. From my experience specifically, when I went back, I would say it was quite equal from what I think. Yeah. Wow. It was quite equal. I think maybe that's a factor in confidence levels or... Well, I think Nigerians are just quite bold in general. <laughs> Might be an unfair comparison, to be honest. Um, but yeah, that's, that was an interesting journey of thought. <laughs> that is. I was about to ask you, tell us something about your culture that most people don't know, but that definitely counts. <laughs> that, that probably would qualify that Nigerians are quite bold um, and confident people. Well, specifically um, on the surface when you're talking to strangers or you're in a setting. That would obviously be a generalization, but just from my experience, um, that would be a thing. <laughs> That's really cool. Are you planning on going back? I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to do like a kind of like a journey of the continent, actually, the African continent um, at some stage of my life. But yeah, I'd definitely be going back when it's probably safe enough to... <laughs> Yeah, hopefully, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon, exactly. Is there anything about your culture having been there recently that you wish you could change? Oh God, there's so much about the Nigerian culture that I wish I could change. I think I'll, I'd be here for ages. And and I have this kind of like uneasy feeling about like um, criticizing it, given that um I'm a child of an immigrant that left, like, you know, that I'm a child of a citizen that left Nigeria and I didn't grow up there. So even though I'm able to like, perhaps critically anal analyze or critique 
um, the government structures or the social structures, I have a tinge of like, or, you know, that has a, a smudge of like, oh, you think you're better than us, do you? Um, I don't know why, but I often think that like, um, for instance, I'll, I'll give an example of during um, NSARS, I think there was a the protest that was kind of um, surged as a result of like um, the, um, excuse me, the, the police um, checkpoints and the police interaction with the citizens and how um, they were brutal and they were like, you know, extorting the citizens and, you know, there was, and killings going on. So there was a protest that happened at the Lekki toll gate. And there was a lot of conversation on the internet about, you know, supporting and what um, the, the, uh, the Nigerians abroad or the diaspora could do about the situation. And there was a lot of context that changed in some of the conversations where it was like, you know, you guys could do this or you could do more of this and you could do more of that to people on ground. And a lot of response was like, well, we're having a hard time and you're not living here, especially during um, the Nigerian independence state that kicked off just before the protests. Um, Nigerian, Nigerian independence day is October the 1st. And I think the protests started on October 13th. Um, so there was a lot of like civil unrest and conversations happening, let's say over Twitter. And one of the things that came up was like, you know, you know, you guys don't know how it feels. You guys don't live here. So giving your um, perspective sometimes hurts because it, th- it feels like we're not stupid. We're we're navigating systems that are not necessarily um, uh, built for us or, or benefiting us. And I think one of the biggest things that I would love to change if um, my perspective can actually be accepting this would be that. Um, we start from the top and the only way to to adjust as a society or as a Nigerian society would be to start stripping the structures that were left in place by colonialism, you know, and, and that's what the government is currently operating on, not caring about um, their citizens, but more for themselves and for respectability politics. Mm. And I think the country is quite divided in what um, and the irony is like our anthem is about unity and all of this. Um, the irony is that we're quite divided in by tribe and by opinions and and by classism, even by so many different things, because racism is not a, is not necessarily a thing in Nigeria. Um, yeah. So there's so many layers I could keep rambling. On. <laughs> no, but it's all very interesting. It's interesting to see the struggles that different countries have that's similar yeah. to your own country. And that's a little bit different. And one of the things that has come up with previous guests is how there's a lot of tribalism in countries where there's a lot of different mini cultures and yeah. different languages. And I know you have that in Nigeria as well. And that surely must play into the difficulties that the government has in terms of unifying the people. Definitely. Um, I, I don't think they're, I don't think they have something in place or they have like the ethos in place that puts the citizens first. Mm. I don't think, I don't think that generally exists in how they write their laws or how they set their policies in motion. Um, there's so many things that get passed that doesn't even, you kind of think, 
what did nobody think about the people involved? Like just even how we're handling um the handling traffic flow is is absurd to be in, in traffic for four plus hours in, in the same spot sometimes is is absurd. Like I, I don't think it should be I don't think it should be a thing. I, like I, I don't know. I feel so silly saying it. Like, oh, I don't know how to fix it generally. But I'm like, this can't be how we're functioning. Then maybe more bridges built. I mean, Nigeria is 200 million deep in people, and that's just people we've accounted for in the census that that are actually visible enough to be counted. We're not talking about villages that are deep in Nigeria that we don't know about or we're not counting. I mean, oh, there's so many things about Nigeria that it's quite unnerving. And that's just talking about the little I know on the political level. But like if we're talking about culturally, just how we perceive women, how women are sometimes um, second class citizens, um, how how we treat LGBT people, how we treat people of different opinions, how, how we treat, again, people of different tribes. It's just it. Like the culture is beautiful and rich and full of life and and celebration. And there's so many things about specifically the Yoruba culture that I'm part of that I adore. Um, but a lot of things about it that does break my heart. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all have that with our perspective cultures and our adaptive cultures when we move. Yeah. Is things that were like, yeah, this is awesome. And then there's things that were like, oh God, can we just get rid of this? <laughs> it's part of being human, I suppose. Definitely, definitely. Now, when you first moved to Ireland, you said you were only eight years old. Did you have yeah. difficulty integrating into the culture or was it smooth because of your youth or was it difficult because of your race? How was that experience? Um. It's funny because I think a lot of my childhood is a blur. <laughs> you planked it. Yeah, I don't know if anybody has else has that. Like, um, I don't have super vivid memories of uh, being eight. Um, I just have specific memories of being eight, you know. Um, but I do remember that um, I also had French. Um, so I had, like, English a mix of English, French and Yoruba and coming into like um, a primary school in Longford town, County Longford was probably a funny experience, more funny than I remember. Um, but I know that I was put in like extra English class, um, probably because of my accent. And, um, and it's partly why I tend to speak quite clear when I'm performing. I don't have a specific accent of sorts I don't think anyway um but nobody ever thinks they have an accent until somebody else is like that's an accent <laughs> well in truth we all have accents you know what I mean exactly we all have accents because we all speak differently from each other um definitely um but I was put in extra English class um, for first class and yeah and after a while they just kind of figured out that I could speak English and <laughs> <laughs> they dropped it yeah, they dropped it and it was fine. But um, I don't remember, I don't remember too much of a struggle um, being eight and integrating. And I suppose I was kind of used to the moving around kind of thing. As a child, you just kind of like soak up being able to move around. You adapt and um, you adjust probably quicker than you're supposed to. <laughs> like you just get on survival mode. Um, um, kind of. I, Growing up, I moved from like little family from family home to family home. So I lived with my mom 
um, at my grandparents' house. And at some stage, I lived with my aunt. So before I moved, so I moved around a lot. So I think adjusting um, and integrating was probably um, uh, nearly second nature. <laughs> yeah, and definitely, like you said, when we're young, it's just easier to adapt to whatever life throws at you because you don't know any better. You're not it's settled with any happenings. Exactly. There's no point of reference. You're just kind of going with the flow and there's advantages and disadvantages of that, but it sounds like it was an advantage for you. So let's talk about being a black poet in Ireland. How, how did that start? Tell me about it. Oh gosh. Uh, How did, how did I start being a black poet in Ireland? Well, not black. (laughs) You just started in life being black. Yeah. Yeah. I just woke up black. Um, but, um, (laughs) I woke up like this, Uh, but generally, I just, I just, I, I don't think I thought about being a poet in Ireland. Do, do you know what I mean? I didn't think about the perspective or the wider context or anything. I think I was quite um, um, selfishly pursuing um, expression uh, in, in college. I think I was in second year of college and my friends knew about my poetry, they knew I had a little copy on the side that I used to write poetry in. Um, And there was a poetry slam going on in the literary society um, in Maynooth campus. I went to Maynooth University and they were just kind of like, (laughs) you have to get up there. Um, You have to get up there. We're going to sign you up. And I was like, fine, fine. I'm going to sign up. And all like five of them were at the table right in front of the microphone, just like, (laughs) like, you're ready. Gang, they were just like ready um, to applaud me and everything. But I remember the first time I went up there, I like, I was totally nervous. I was, I was like, my voice was quivering. I had a page right in front of my face. I think I came like fourth place. But then the following year, I came back and I won the competition and I got to represent Minnie's University um, at the InterVarsity um, Poetry Slam in Dublin City. Um, in NCAD. Um, yeah. And it was really good. It was really, really good. It was, it was so much fun. And that was kind of like the first time I was like in front of a microphone doing poetry properly. Um, and then beforehand, I'd only ever just written in my copy, maybe did a few poems at church. Um, gotten, I think I probably gotten a lot of stage um, exposure from church, just because they just throw you up there. You're like, you have to lead a song. You have to do some praise and worship, get up there and lead. And you just have to do it. I just grew up in the choir. So I think I got used to being on stage, but never got used to doing poetry until college. And so that's kind of how I started. I started with slams and I just got really into slams. I'd go to everything. I'd go to gigs. I'd go to everything. And I thought it was like, the most fun, the the most exciting way to express yourself, the most exciting way to get other people to feel your feelings, um, to convince them about your story, to tell them about your story without having to like necessarily tell them your name, actually. <laughs> you can tell somebody an entire part of your story and they don't even know your name. They don't, they might not even know it's about you, depending on how you write it. You can code so many secrets in in poetry. That's so exciting. Um, You can tell people about themselves in poetry. You can tell people about what they're doing in poetry, what you're doing, 
what you're both collectively doing, what you'd like to do. Like you could just plant so many seeds. Um, you could feel their imagination. And I was marveled by the world of poetry and how other people did it because I'd only ever like seen poetry on YouTube <laughs> okay. growing up. So like with writing, I'd, it wasn't something that I did um, to be good at it. I just did it because I thought it was a great way of expressing. And then I'd watch it on YouTube. I'd watch American poets, their slams. And I'd, I just thought they were amazing. So being able to be part of that culture in Ireland, in Dublin, I didn't think it was possible. I didn't even know that world existed. So I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And I loved hearing other people's use of language, seeing other people's swag on stage. You're like, whoa. Um, I remember the first time I, my mind got blown at how I could do it professionally. I think I saw Jafaris on stage in Workman's Club. I'd only been doing slams then and a little side gigs, but I'd never like pushed myself properly on stage um, beyond small bars. So I watched him in Workman's Club and the room was packed out. And I watched his performance. I was front row and I was like, what? People can do this. <laughs> I was I was mesmerized. I was like, wow, I'm going to do this. <laughs> I'm going to do this stuff. But with poetry. Um, and yeah, I just kind of went for it. And my first big gig would have been um, St. Patrick's Day Festival. It was a show called Young Blood. And he was in the National Concert Hall. That was my first big gig. And I got paid for it and I couldn't believe it. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that was the like first big gig I got paid for. And I was like, yeah, that was like, yeah, that was my first proper gig. That was it. <laughs> was like, and it kind of nice. evolved. Yeah, it just evolved from there. I think that was, yeah, that was I did one poem that night and I remember I had the paper in my hand. It was in my pocket. And I was like, I don't know, am I going to say it? With the, like, am I going to do this for this on stage or am I going to just put it in my pocket? And there's somebody captured a picture of it um, and the paper is just in my hand, but I'm talking to the crowd and I'm not looking at it. Uh, and so it was, I was so proud of myself. <laughs> I was so proud of myself in that picture. <laughs> but yeah, that's how I got started poetry in Ireland. Yeah. How did it evolve into a business for you? Um, I started when I started making little 50 euros <laughs> after I realized, whoa, I could do this like professionally. I could actually um, I could actually pursue this like I wasn't making the kind of income that I could um, make money from at that point, um, like properly Um I think in 2017, yeah, 2017, 2018, I just started, I was still working at nine to five. I was working in a bank. Um, and afterwards I was working in, as a, in a startup. So I was, I always had a nine to five at some, for a long time. Well, not a long time. <laughs> I don't have a long life. I haven't had a huge long life or anything, but anyway, um, I was working, I was doing nine to fives and I decided that after my undergrad, I would do a postgrad in communication studies and public relations. Um, and I was like, if I can make money out of this, I can make more and I can build a business and I can build a world 
and more structure and more types of gigs that I would like. So I decided I would go to school and see how I'd, how best to market that, how best to get myself out there, how best to make people want to hear what I actually have to say. Um, so not to convince them that my poetry is good because I could just work on that as a separate thing, as an art form. But the the main my main concern was how do I get this in front of people that would like to listen and uh, in, in front of the right ears in front of the right faces. Um, and that just meant as many people as possible for me at that point in time. So I was like, I'm going to study this at the European Institute of Communications. Uh, I'm going to get this degree and I got a first in it and I did my um, thesis on myself. <laughs> My project. Work. <laughs> yeah, I did my project work on myself as Feli speaks. I was like, I need to, I need to figure this out. So yeah, it's it's funny because I went to school for Feli speaks, in a way, um, and yeah, I just decided that I would map out some form of a way of selling my art, and I just went with it since then. Um, and one of the biggest things that I would say from doing that. Um, project work on myself was that um, I learned that if you think, yeah, to put it really simply and excuse my English, but if you think you're the shit, everybody will think you're the shit. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that's the biggest summary that I got. Like if you make as much noise as possible about how rad what you're doing is and have the content to back it up, people will believe you and they will appreciate that you told them about it. Yeah, literally. And it's a kind of, it sounds really confident, but I didn't get to that. Like I went with it as a, as a concept more than as a belief and mm. I'm slowly believing it more now, but like, it was just, the brand is, this is the shit. <laughs> and, and like to really put it simply I could write a proper paragraph <laughs> but this is a podcast <laughs> so if you want to sound by Feli Speaks brand ethos this, this is the shit <laughs> I love it like you know to put it somewhere in your head when you listen to a piece of poetry and that's the thing that um, one of the exciting ways that I really want to you know changed like one of my bio used to be this really corny thing like um um somebody else wrote it for me but he used to say Feli Speaks would like to change the face of poetry <laughs> in Ireland and I used to think that sounds so cocky Felicia <laughs> like and I never told them to change it or anything but I was like damn and but but honestly like you just want to be able to create art that's like that looks like this, you know, that, that sounds the way this does. Um, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so with quarantine now, how do you find little mini escapes to like get creative and collaborate with others? Cause it's gotta be hard now. Oh gosh. Um, I think the hardest part of quarantine is having to do work at home, but in general, um, I have enough work to do <laughs> that it's, that's part of the overwhelming part that like you have a lot of work to do and you're in this, in your house. My house is not a box, but it feels still that like you're trapped, you're enclosed, you can't go outside, <laughs> you can't play with your friends, you know? Um, so you have to work and play in the same place. And honestly, it's probably my biggest struggle. I've really underestimated how long this 
this lockdown situation would be and and actually how much of a toll it would take on my mental health. I think last year I was, every time somebody would ask me about quarantine, I'd be like, oh, I'm actually really good. I'm fine, you know? <laughs> and like the first the first lockdown in Ireland actually was grand because it was spring to summer and you could go outside and sit on the grass. And that was enough because you were in the sun. And that was, that was great. And you come back inside and do work. And the second lockdown wasn't too bad, but this one is exhausting on the mind and to tell you the truth but work-wise I think like you know I have enough to do I have you know a few grants that I'm working on that um a few commissions that is productive that's keeping me productive and I'm excited about things to come this year so yeah brilliant and how do you choose what you're going to work on in terms of theme or topic Oh, I just start at the center, which is like whatever I'm passionate about. Um, I don't write to go with like what's popping, <laughs> for lack of a better <laughs> for lack of a better word. I don't write about what's popping. I just write about what I care about, and I usually care about a lot of things. I care about. Um, and specifically, and like, I'm not going to pretend that like, I'm not selfish. Like I care about things that affect me. Um, and that's the best way to relate to other people. Yeah. Like if you talk about things that is real about yourself, there are people that are like, this is a reflection of me. And that's, that's the perfect way to write to start with. And then, um, you can expand beyond that. Currently I'm trying to uh, do a lot more work where I write about things that doesn't concern me specifically, um, yes. things that I've never experienced. And that, that's quite exciting. Um, but in general, um, I start with things that I'm passionate about. I start at my new place <laughs> to give it some a word. <laughs> no, it makes total yeah. sense. And if you hit a block to something that you're striving for, how do you respond to that? How do you overcome that resistance? Um, please ask that again. <laughs> sure. If you're trying to achieve something and you hit mm -hmm. a roadblock, how do you respond? Uh, I leave it alone. <laughs> I just take a break for a little bit. Um, yeah, like if it, it would depend on what it is specifically. Like if I was struggling with an idea that I want to write about um, or I'm struggling with, let's say uh, I've been given a brief and I'm struggling with the concept. Like it could be something that I'm interested in and passionate about because um, I enjoy writing about like social issues, um, love, family, um, sexuality, gender, all of that. Um, I like writing about those things, but like if I get a brief and it's slightly more specific that carries a different emotion, I'm a little bit like, huh, like, uh, let's say I'd write about um, accepting your body, right? Um, and the uh, the trials of like fitting into your female body. And then they asked me to write and somebody else asked me to write a brief about, oh, um, how much I love it or how beautiful it is. And I'm like, oh, damn it. <laughs> what am I going to say? I, don't get, I know what to say, but I don't know how to say it. Um, I just leave it alone. 
um, I just leave it alone for a little bit and go and maul out what my truth is about it, what I really think about it. Um, or I go, I go and watch somebody else's thoughts about it. Or I just go on a walk <laughs> with my dog and decide I'm going to I'm going to frown about it for a few days and think about it and then come to come back to it with a fresh mind. So depending on what it is, um, most most importantly, I just give it a break. I give it some rest. Um, and I go off and usually I give myself enough time um, and patience to um, create whatever the world of response should be and not force it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Not forcing it is really important because sometimes you can get caught up with the pressure to perform or deliver something on a, by a certain timeline. And if you force it, you take the goodness out of it. You take the creativity, spontaneity out of it. Yeah, sometimes I'm trying to do more work where, well, I have scheduled a slot to do a particular thing that is not specific for work or it's not like linked to um, something to do with Feli Speaks or whatever. It's just something that I want to do. And I'm like, for some reason, I've pushed it and pushed it and pushed it from the second week in January, pushed it, pushed it, pushed it. Now it's scheduled for like, the last couple of days of January <laughs> and currently and like I, I really didn't know that I'd be this kind of person that now I'm just like the kind of writer that writes for work. <laughs> <laughs> it's not where you saw the whole thing going, is it? <laughs> I see this coming, but like I try and write as much as possible. Um, I keep a journal to just like, oh, and dear diary. <laughs> Ah, oh, they're good. I love diary. <laughs> yeah. So I try to do that, but um, it is what it is. I think discipline is, even though I enjoy the go with the flow thing and the creative part of work, um, I try and have discipline where if I have a deadline, I'm more likely to get something done. If you yeah. tell me this is the date and you have to do it, like I might take longer than I should. Let's say it's a two hour job and I have three days to do it. I will wait till the last six hours <laughs> before I look at it. <laughs> but it will be awesome. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, that's really human nature. We don't like to um, span things out. We tend to cram things. I mean, that's how I was in university. It was always lastminute.com. And I don't oh like working God. that way, but that's how it ended up working out. Yeah, but like I, I, I know that I've become an adult now where I'm so proud of myself when I get up on time. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, your day is going awesome. Like 30 minutes into waking up, I'm like, wow, you're on time. <laughs> you're on schedule. It is a good feeling though. I've been doing the getting up early thing myself. It is a, it's like you you have more time to do stuff. It's really, really good. Honestly, like showered, you brushed your teeth, you had breakfast, you opened your emails already. Look at you. <laughs> so I just start like, honestly, when I start taking up my day, doing the right things, like if you do it properly, let's say you start at noon, you're finished by six. Like I applaud myself and I'm like, look at you. You have the rest of the evening. To yeah. <laughs> but like when you have those days where you get up at two, and you start at five and you're there till 12, it's, it's on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not as good. That's for sure. <laughs> it's not as fun. <laughs> what do you wish 
to contribute to Irish society with your work? I would love to leave a mark that is not just visible for now, but is visible for a long time. That is as important to the Irish society as Yates, you know, Mm. and not just for myself, but for everyone that is black and Irish that looks like me, that has thoughts like me, that is, that has niches like me, that is interested in anything like me. And I want our voices to be heard in all these spaces. Like I feel incredibly honored and privileged to be in spaces that national concert hall being one of my first gigs is an amazing honor for me or Dublin Castle being where I performed Concerns 50th anniversary. That's that's a big honor for me. So these things are amazing. Being given an honor by APNI, that's amazing for me to be represented in these spaces that contribute to Irish society. I, I want to leave that mark for everybody that looks like me. That so they can feel so they can feel comfortable, like when I'm dead and long gone, so they can feel even more comfortable to walk into spaces and be like, well, you know, you know, in the leaving cert, you know, we have Yates, we have Seamus Heaney and we have Fairly Speaks, you know, like. Like reading a poem, like being in secondary school, being 14 or being 16, 17, doing your leave insert and reading a poem that resonates to your Black Irishness, that resonates to your culture specific to Ireland and specific to your life and being able to, you know, answer questions about it. It's not just it's not just about my name or whatever. It's about being represented and feeling seen and not feeling alienated in all these big, big, really Irish structures. Um, Absolutely. Leaving yeah. a legacy for the next generation of Black and exactly. Irish. Exactly. I love that. Thank you so much, Felicity Speak, for spending a few moments with us, sharing a bit of your journey. It's been an absolute Thank pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me, Carmen. And you can find more on Philly Speak at www.phillyspeak.com. You can also find her on Instagram and we're going to have links to her website and Insta in the show notes until the next journey. Ciao. Thank you.